Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 84? On May 2nd of 2022, I gave you an eight-minute version of Psalm 84. Today, I hope to expand on that a little bit. It's one of my favorite passages. It's one of my favorite Psalms. I love it, and I feel even more, uh, even more uh, passionate about it, having just taken a pilgrimage. And uh, I want to take a, a few moments to share with you some of our experiences and then uh, tie them into this idea of pilgrimage that we read. Uh, that's a very profound biblical theme, and uh, I want to share that with you today. But uh, I also want to acknowledge that, um, that I am learning, and, uh, and I do not yet uh, fully understand uh, the things that I'm reading even in the Scripture. I have a, a sense of where we're going, and I thank God for His tremendous grace because He continues to shift and guide us to keep us on the straight paths for His name's sake. The steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord, but I don't, I don't claim to know all my steps. And, uh, and so I just want to offer you the little caveat as I start out again after a few months of being away to let you know that uh, I'm also learning on this journey, and like you, I am a pilgrim uh, seeking the city whose builder and maker is God. And uh, I have some experience, and hopefully my experience will be valuable. And I have uh, spent many years studying the scriptures and hopefully have learned uh, things that are of great value, but I don't pretend to know. It's amazing how sometimes even somebody who's fresh to the journey can have a perspective that old folks have, have forgotten or never saw. And the fresh person, the person with fresh eyes, can see it instantly. And, and so I encourage you along this journey to be a learner and to be open to learn and to understand new things uh, about the Scripture and about the Lord. There are ancient things which must never change. But there are fresh ways of seeing the Lord through the ancient lenses which will absolutely take your breath away. And I want, to, uh, I want to explore those with you and learn those with you. Over the next few months, I hope to revisit some of the stories of the Bible, some of the, the old familiar stories perhaps, some from the Old Testament, some from the New, and recover the lessons from them that are currently um, a little out of vogue. I want, to, uh, I want to go back to stories like Abraham and Sarah, and discover what it meant for Abraham and Sarah to leave their place of comfort and to go to a place the Lord had called them without knowing where they were going and discover their purpose in the call of the Lord, not in each one of them becoming the best them that they could be, but in surrendering the best them that they could be in order to become what God wanted for them. And I want to recover that message in a, in a way that, that works in a generation that no longer values that kind of sacrifice. I want to look at lessons like Samson and how he disobeyed his parents, disobeyed the Lord, and how God still blessed him. But the consequences of his, of his unfaithfulness to the Lord were dire. And I want to revisit that and talk about the consequences of taking God's grace for granted. But I want to do it in a way that makes us learn and want to, want to grow. 
And so, if you will, have patience with me as we try and work our way through that. Uh, I think together, over the next few months, maybe even the next few years, we'll discover a new a newfound love for the ancient way that is given to us in the Scripture. Today is the beginning of that. Today is the beginning of the concept of pilgrimage for us, theologically. I want us to take a theological pilgrimage through the way that has been forged for us through thousands of years of Jewish and Christian history. I want us to find God in the ancient ways. And so we'll start in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. That's the first line of the poem. Preceding that, in your Bibles, you may have a short little, uh, little introduction. Um, if, you, if you're open to your, to your Bible right now, whether it's on your smartphone or actually in paper, you may notice that there's a, there's a title for the psalm. It says, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. That's what it says in the English Standard Version. Underneath that, it has these words, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Do, you, do, yours, do your Bibles have that? That's imp it's important information because it gives you a, a little bit of historical background for this particular psalm. And uh, for those of you who like to geek out to the scriptures, which you should all be like that, but for those of you who like to geek out to the scriptures, there's a lot of really cool stuff in those few lines right there. Let me give you a little hint at a few of them. We won't get into the depths of them, but let me give you a hint at a few of them. To the choir master, this uh, shows us that there was actually a structure of worship that, uh, that was led by a master, a choir master. There was uh, not just a, a haphazard group of singers, but there was actually order and structure to it. So the worship of the Old Testament, the worship of the book of Psalms, this liturgical prayer, this song, was actually to be led by a choir master. And it was therefore to be sung, to be taught to be sung in a, in a choir. That's cool. That gives us some permission to have choirs in the worship of God, if we're following the ancient way. You might like that. Next, according to Getith, well, actually that word uh, is um, an interesting word um, that uh, is in, in my little notes says it's just a musical term, but actually... It's not just a musical term. It actually means according to the wine press. According to the wine press, and that's an interesting that's an interesting uh, analogy. The wine press, if you take it as a figurative thing, as something a metaphor, uh, then wine press is where you take the fruit of the wine at the end of the summer and you press out the juice, right? Which then becomes uh, ultimately wine. So wine press is a place of pressing. And uh, it can be seen as a place of, of, of hardship then. Uh, the grape gets crushed, and out of the crushing comes the wine. So that's an interesting illustration and worthy of some contemplation. But in addition to that, and the one that I like to focus on maybe a little bit more, the wine press is actually a place of tremendous celebration. Because, um, well, as it turns out, Tammy and I on our little journey happened to walk through a lot of vineyards. And it was the beginning of the season when we walked. And uh, as we walked through these vineyards across the north of Spain, uh, the grapes were very, very, very small. 
They were just forming when we started out our journey. And by the time we reached the end of our journey, the grapes were green and they were bigger, but they were, they were not full size yet. And they certainly weren't anywhere near ripe for the eating. But they would be, they will be in August or September. The grapes will be perfect and the harvest will begin and the grapes will be taken and harvested and taken to the wine press. And when things are taken to the wine press, that's the time when all the work is, is uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of busyness. It's the harvest season, but the end of the, the season is coming and the joy that's set before you is, is right there. And all the hardship is almost over. And so the wine press, according to the wine press, then this psalm is perhaps to be sung in the context of joy and celebration. So these are valuable things, and uh, I give them to you not as earth-shattering revelations, but what they are is perhaps an invitation for you to look a little deeper at the Scripture to find in there some beautiful, beautiful ideas that will really help you to understand what God wants to say to you. Anyway, a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's a big one. And uh, it turns out the sons of Korah, uh, there's quite a lot of history there. And um, uh, I'm not going to get into, into their story uh, because it's just too much and I don't have time for that today. But that's, that's a big one as well. And if you're interested, you can always come and ask me after the fact and I'll tell you about the sons of Korah. It turns out there are two sections of psalms in the book of Psalms that were written by the sons of Korah. And they actually correspond to each other in form, in format and message. The first group is Psalms 42 through 49. And, uh, and the second group is this, Psalm 84 through 88, excluding Psalm 86, which is actually written by David. And it's kind of stuck in the middle of this for some reason. But the Psalms of the sons of Korah were either Psalms written by them or Psalms collected by them and used by them in the worship most likely the post-exilic uh, stage when Israel had returned from exile in Babylon. For those of you who geek out, that's a lot of information, but it's really cool stuff to know. Okay, how lovely is your dwelling place? How lovely is your dwelling place? Two months ago, Tammy and I headed out to, uh, to take on an adventure. And our adventure was to walk El Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the Camino from France to Spain, 500 miles across the countryside in pilgrimage, following in the footsteps, so-called, of St. James the Apostle to end in the great cathedral in Santiago itself and there to give thanks to God for bringing us to the completion of our journey, but then from there to begin a journey of pilgrimage into our real lives. It was an adventure. We took it on as a challenge, as a, a fitness challenge, a health challenge, but also an opportunity to spend time with each other. Uh, when we started the, the Camino, um, our first overnight was in a little town called Orison, a little, a little mountainside uh, um, uh, pilgrim hut basically and uh, there uh, on the first night we had a pilgrim's dinner with about 40 other people and uh, all sitting around these big tables and uh, eating dinner together and at the end of the dinner uh, the, the person who had served us uh, banged a cup on the table and said all right one by one we're all going to go around the room and everyone's going to give their name the place that they're from and the reason why they're walking the Camino and in that moment as we all stood up, each one, one by one, and we gave our story briefly, 
uh, we became fellow pilgrims. In that moment, we identified ourselves with the pilgrimage, and we told why we were there. And I said I was there uh, to walk with Tammy and to walk with other pilgrims and to walk with Jesus. And that's how we started the pilgrimage. And for 40 days, we walked across Spain, not knowing where we were going, except we were following the directive, the, the, the markers. And we had a little guidebook that told us what to expect. And we walked, and we walked with other people, and we walked alone. Sometimes it was the two of us together. Sometimes she was too fast for me, and I couldn't keep up. And uh, sometimes I was too fast for her, and, uh, and she couldn't keep up. But we were always starting in the same place and ending in the same place together. And, uh, and on that journey, we encountered a great many wonderful things. One of the first things we recognized was that we were carrying way too much. And I am uh, already known as Eric the Overpreparer. And uh, I told you before we left that I loved preparing and I took a whole year to prepare and I bought all the best gear in the world, Richard. I was so proud of it. And uh, some of you actually got to see it. Doug, I think, came down once or twice and we showed it all and I even showed him how it worked. Doug used to have a camping store many years ago and so he was my buddy because we could be proud of the stuff together. And, um, and uh, we, we were so excited and my pack, I was so excited that everything fit into my pack and I had all the best ultralight equipment and whatnot. And Tammy, I, I filled up her pack too and uh, with all ultralight equipment. Of course, a lot of ultralight equipment makes for a heavy pack. But um, when we started out in Orison, uh, well, we started out in Saint-Jean, but the first night in Orison, I realized we were in trouble. We had walked about six miles uphill, and, uh, which was a very short day for the first day, just to get acclimatized. And uh, we climbed, I don't know, 3,000 feet maybe in that first day, and it was a lot, it was a lot of climbing. And, uh, and we got to the top, and I thought, oh boy, we're in trouble. And the reason we were in trouble was because we were sharing a room with a whole bunch of other people, and they were all snoring. And, uh, and I wasn't going to be able to sleep. Of course, I snored too, so that didn't help. But, but I realized we were carrying way too much. And part of the lesson, the first lesson of pilgrimage is that you're, you're always carrying too much. And, um, and it's because, it's because I, I wanted to be in charge. It's because I wanted to be prepared for everything that was coming. I wanted to be ready. I wanted no surprise to happen. I, want, I wanted to be, you know, if everybody else, if the whole world's falling apart, we, we're still okay. If monkeypox takes over the world or, you know, we could still live in a tent outside and, uh, and I'd have, you know, all my cooking gear and we could cook stuff and make stuff and I could purify the water and we'd be good. Turns out we didn't need any of that. So four days later, when we reached Pamplona, um, I put it all in the mail and shipped it back home. A whole bunch of it, 25 pounds of it, uh, 20 pounds, 20 pounds of it, which made our packs a whole lot lighter. So the very expensive sleeping bags, they came home. The sleeping camping mattress, you know, the one I persuaded her she needed, it came home. The rain pants, oh yeah, we had a big argument about the rain pants before we left. <laughs> So I was like, you are going to love these rain pants. These are excellent rain pants. You could go through snow and you'd be fine with these rain pants. And she's like, I will never wear those rain pants. <laughs> I said, I will carry the rain pants for you, but you're going to wear those rain pants. And we got to Pamplona and the rain pants came home. <laughs> Turns out she was right. We, mine also came home. That's right. <laughs> mine also came home. 
One of the um, one of the things we we discovered was that um, when you're on a pilgrimage, you can't build home every night because building a place to settle takes time, effort, money, and it stops the pilgrimage. The purpose of the pilgrimage is to get somewhere that you're not. And we discovered that the comforts that we were used to at home, we were going to need to voluntarily forego in order to get the achieved destination. And this is a very profound lesson. So the stuff that I brought, the comforts that I brought with me, they were unnecessary because I didn't have time to use them and I wasn't going to need them. They had to come home and it was a challenge. That day at the post office was a challenge. To put that thing in the box and seal it up and not take it out again was a challenge. Because I spent a lot of time getting that. I spent a lot of time researching that. I spent a lot of time making sure I had the best one in the world. I was so proud of that thing. I wanted to show the whole world this thing. But I didn't need it. And the reason was because we had predetermined that we had a destination. Santiago was our destination. And there, where the pilgrimage ends, we can go back to home. Psalm 84 is a, song, a psalm of pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage psalm that's written either by people who are far away, who cannot return, or by people who are making an annual return to the house of the Lord. It is either a metaphor altogether, or it's a psalm that would be sung by those who each year would leave their farmlands and their homes and would take the trip to the feast days in Jerusalem to stand in the presence of the Lord, in the house of the Lord, the place where he had determined that his name and his, and his presence would be. And for the Jewish people, this was a really big part of their, of their being. It was it, it, from the time of Moses, uh, they were people on pilgrimage. They, from the time that they were, well, from the time of Abraham, they were on pilgrimage. Uh, but, but Moses brought the people out of Egypt. And you know the story of their traversing the desert, the wilderness, to get to the promised land. And they were not supposed to make a home in the wilderness, although they stayed in the wilderness for way longer than they should have. 40 years in the wilderness, but that wasn't their home because they were continually moving. Whenever the Spirit of the Lord would move, they would move because they were on their way to a destination. Well, as it turns out, that translated, when they finally got into the promised land, they were reminded that they weren't actually in the utopia of God's presence yet because they're still on earth and they still need a Savior and we still have sinfulness in our hearts. And Christ was yet to come to free us from the sin of our hearts. So the people were to remember God and they were to remember that they were not home yet. And so three times a year, they were to gather all their family, they were to leave home and they were to make their pilgrimage to the place where God had chosen for his name to be, which was Jerusalem. And there Solomon built a temple. And when Solomon's temple was destroyed, eventually Ezra built a temple. And, and after that temple was reworked, the Hasmoneans and so forth, they, they built it and Herod built a temple. And eventually Jesus was in that temple. And um, 
but that, that there was a pilgrimage, uh, a continual uh, uh, concept of pilgrimage in the hearts of the people because that was a reminder that we come from God and we are to return to God and that our time on earth is a time of testing. Jesus did not take away the idea of pilgrimage from us. Instead, he refined the idea of pilgrimage even more, and he gave it to us in a more robust form. But he promised that he would come again and that he would take us to the place where his Father has prepared for us a dwelling. You may recall in the Gospels that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many many mansions, many rooms. These, these things are promises that are a part of the Christian faith. And as we think about journeying into the ancient way, and as I prepare you for a season of teaching on the ancient way, I want you to know that Christ calls us to see this world as not our home. That is a fundamental call of Christianity. This world is not our home. And that shapes everything about the way we do our lives. If this world is our home, if we are just the random acts of a random universe, then it is appropriate for us to spend our lives developing our own self. Then it is appropriate for us to just enjoy the moment as the greatest of our ability and to live for here and live for now. But of course, there will come with that ideology, there will come a tremendous fear of the end. There will come a moment when you realize that, that you've got less time in front of you than you have behind you and, 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 and time is, 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 is running out on you. And, and when you reach that place, if you are a random act of a random universe, how will you, how will you come to grips with the meaninglessness of your life? Christ calls us to a different philosophy, and his philosophy is you are meaningful. You are not the random act of a random universe, but you are a distinct act of a very, very intimate God who made you and fashioned you and formed you and gave you an identity that is precious to him and precious to you if you will see yourself through his eyes. Christ calls us to a redeemed relationship with our Father and the Santiago of our pilgrimage is the heart of God. The very presence of Almighty God, the heart of the Father of God, that we, the wayward children of God, who have all gone our way, our own way, like wild sheep running scattered in the mountains, that He has come to call us together and to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death as our great shepherd to the very presence of God where we are to be reconciled, not sheep, but children of God, reconciled to the heart of the Father. And that is the ultimate Santiago, as it were, of our, of our great Camino, our way. Christ has called us to recognize then that in order to walk on that pilgrimage, on that journey, there are certain things which the world clings to, which will make your journey extremely difficult. There are certain things which are too heavy for you to carry from one place to the next. There are certain things which are wrong. If you, if you are desiring to get to a certain place, there are certain directions which will lead you in opposite direction. And so there is a right way and there is a wrong way. And you don't have to believe this. You don't have to accept this. 
Uh, you are your own free person. It's your life. You can do it your way, whichever way you want. But if you want to know the Father, and if you want to know the freedom that comes in Christ Jesus, and if you want to know eternal life, then Christ has come to tell you that there are not many ways. There is one way. There is one way. Along the way, there will be many, many markers pointing in the direction you should be going. Some of them may be a little confusing. Some of them may look like they're going in a different direction than what you think. But there are markers that have been laid out for us in ancient times, and they can be trusted as long as we don't turn them around. I fear that the generation in which we live, uh, like every generation that has gone before, but of course this is the one we're living in, I fear that the generation in which we live has made it very, very popular to change the ancient paths to move the ancient boundaries, to question and challenge everything, and to leave us ultimately in a place where we just don't know where we're going. We don't know up from down. The, uh, the questions that are posed to our, to our leaders have them so perplexed and so afraid that they cannot answer them publicly without fear of repercussion. The cancel culture is so strong that we are all disempowered. We have all been robbed of our opinions, our voices, our courage. And I believe that this is not the way to live. This is not a way to live in peace. This is not a way to live in harmony. This is not a way to live in the blessing of God. Fear is no way to live. Neither is belligerence. Being warriors for crusades that will end up with slaughter and bloodshed, figuratively or literally, these are, these are not the ways to live either. But Christ has given us a very, very clear directive. He said, I am the way. So the question I want to ask you is, whose dwelling place is lovely to you? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? How lovely is your dwelling place? I was astonished by the great cathedrals of Burgos and Leon. I, I was absolutely mesmerized by the architecture, the history. I was also deeply troubled by the gilded statues and the opulence. I was amazed by the stained glass and by the miracles of, of architectural engineering. And I wondered how those things have stood so long. The houses were beautiful. Whose house is beautiful to you? Is it the house of the senator? Is it the house of the CEO? Is it the house of, of the entertainer? Is it the house of the sports hero? Is it the house of your favorite worship leader? Is it the house of 
your business partner or colleague? Is it the house down the street? Whose house is lovely to you? That's a fundamental question you're going to have to answer. Where do you want to live? We all want to live forever. Where do you want to live? The heart of pilgrimage is in finding the destination and setting your heart on it. Without a destination, a pilgrimage is just a long, tedious walk. And you won't finish it. We need a destination, don't we? We need to know where we're going. I want to take a lot of time in this psalm, and I don't want to do any injustice. So I'm just going to leave you that one verse today. There's a lot. We'll talk about it next week again. Maybe we'll get Psalm 84, verse 2. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are calling us to a different place. You are calling us, Lord. I pray that we would hear your voice calling us. How blessed is the one whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. May that be spoken of us too. Lord, I pray for your grace to be poured out on these who are listening, not just now, but those who will listen in time to come. Thank you, Lord, for the blessedness of hearing your word. So be it. In Jesus' name, amen.